Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys take the long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Why did Cat set the palace on fire? What does Masego think is best? And, uh... Why is Goblin Life Expectancy so short? Robert dies in interlude, lost and found. Always walk into traps. Evil is clever and patient and never as vulnerable as when it thinks it holds all the cards. Eudokia, the oft-abducted, Basilia of Nike. So this chapter starts with a quote by the oft-abducted, who's a Basilia, which is not actually an English word, of a place spelled N-I-C-A-E, and the free cities are Greek, so I'm going with E for the ending sound, and Nike sounds pretty fancy, so we're going with I for the I. We're going with it. Other stuff happens too, but let's get into the chapter. <laughs> I'm kidding. Actually, always walk into traps. Evil is clever and patient and never as vulnerable as when it thinks it holds all the cards. Here, I don't think we can say that the heroes walk into the trap this chapter. Catherine is ready for them, more or less, or she has readied herself for them, though she is not ready, as she meets with Afolabi, and then there are explosions and stuff's happening, and we don't get too much understanding yet, other than the bard is barding. And this is sort of flipped because it pretty much ends on Cat walking into a trap. And uh, she's the evil side in this somehow. Oh, how the rotation of the table. But when do we see someone walking into an evil trap? Does the assault on the crown of the dead count? Because it's prepared, but outside of the big old trap that the titan has to take care of there's not so much a trap as a prepared set of defenses and even that's arguably a defense when catherine sets up her tower and kidnaps the claimants to the title of warden of the west that's an obvious trap and people walk into it but she's catherine foundling so she can subvert are there other real traps that get walked into surely theodosian has something i mean 
Theodosian is hard to count for this because I think his orbit is just a constant trap for everybody around him. He, I mean, he creates the uh, the hierarch as basically a living trap for everybody. So, or more specifically for a choir. But I don't think anybody intentionally walks into that. A trap for a choir slash just a great goof. A, a bit to which he makes reality commit. Yeah, just a, a regular old practical joke. The, uh, oh, I wish I had paid a little bit more attention to Twilight back in the day. Read all the mainline books in middle school, but, oh, there was one that either came out or was going to come out from Edward's perspective. Midnight Sun, maybe? Uh, whenever E.E. E. writes The Midnight Sun of Practical Guide and just does it from Theodosian's perspective the entire way through. Oh, boy. That will be the greatest gift we've ever received. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think if there's any others. You, you could maybe argue for the attack on, uh, on the tower, the whole siege of author, but that's similar to the crown of the dead where it's just sort of, yeah, there's traps, but that's just part of an overlapping defense. And you're surprised by individual traps or intentionally walking into individual traps but it's sort of just one big thing so that's kind of hard to argue for i guess also for the only time in her life i don't think militia is convinced she's holding all the cards she's playing 52 army pickup at that point <laughs> but they did activate her trap card which was the dread emperor right the emperor creepy crawly right uh, yeah i'm not sure most of the traps that people walk into are either are pretty well hidden or the idea was walk into them not because they're vulnerable but because you have an extra layer of trap that you're springing on them i'm i'm thinking like every interaction between cat and the bard basically for the rest of the series it's just the two of them layering traps on each other so it's it's not really in the spirit of this epigraph here again you've activated my trap card but let us move away from Yu-Gi-Oh to Yudokia. yeah uh not that it's not possible in a big setting like this but you know we get the name eudokia here as sort of a just a background character uh eudokia the oft abducted uh and that name becomes attached to somebody pretty important later on so it's uh you know it's weird to see the name show up more than once for you know different characters no it is to be expected i know that especially in the ancient world Lots of names could repeat themselves. Here he So I had a religious studies professor in, that was probably my New Testament course, though admittedly it could have been in any of the myriads she taught. But did I take women and the Bible? No, I took women and religion. It was either in New Testament or women and religion. But she would often bring up the fact that at the turn of the measurement system for time, the ADBC CEBCE cusp around the birth of Christ, the Near East, the area that's now Palestine and Israel, about a quarter of women were named Mary and about another quarter named Salome. And this is one reason why so many Marys show up in the Christian Gospels. Maybe Eudokia is just another word for Mary. It's the pricey or I guess not Pracy, I've associated it there, but it's the uh, Free Cities version of Mary. Yeah. I can you know, Eudokia, that. Eudokia, quite contrariokia. The classic or rhyme. <laughs> Little Miss Eudokia sat on a tufokia eating her curds and tapioca. 
Eudokia had a little lamb. It, we just go on and on. Or sorry, it's pretty Greek, isn't it? Eudokia had a little goat. Eudokia, Max's mother is making Eudokia marry me. That one does not work very well. We wish you a Eudokia Christmas. <laughs> there it is. Um, but there was also a chapter that we read for today. Oh, yeah. Should we talk about that, too? or? The, well, this is chapter seven. The second chapter seven in the series, in fact. And it's called Reception. It takes place at a reception, and Catherine, by whatever means, we're not getting into this again, recounts to us that the guest list for the reception was blessedly short, thank the gods. One, don't thank your gods. They are not on your side. They're just not against you. You are on their side. But more importantly, the guest list was very short. She says that it was her, Juniper, Aisha, Pickler, Hockram, and yet, as she came into the event and chatted with a mysterious minstrel, a traveling troubadour, a person of absolutely no note. When she had a legionary come up to her and acknowledge her as the leader, she felt a flare of disappointment that now her cover was blown. And apparently five people are showing up and she's the only Callowin around at the event for the Callowin meeting the general who's already here. I Catherine was not undercover. She will not be undercover, and she cannot be undercover. Cat has a lot of skills. Uh, stealth and subtlety are not typically among them. Kind of unlike a character we never mentioned today. Yudoki, I'm sorry, Hakram. Hakram is on the guest list. Hakram's attending. But when we're told who attends, we're told Juniper, Aisha, and Pickler. And Hakram, of course, but that went without saying. Which, sure, it does. And it's cute that he's attending her, but also... In the story we're being told where stories are important, a part of the story is that Hakram is so unremarkably present wherever Catherine is because he's her right hand. This is kind of a manifestation of his namedness in the text already. And yeah, Hakram's there, but I don't even need to say that because of course he's there because he's becoming the guy who's there. I think it's fun. I think every word in this text has meaning if you look into it. A powerful segue. Uh... There's a sort of a throwaway line here about cats um, making being a little concerned that uh, Ratface maybe has snuck off to do uh, oh for a drink um, rather than working on supply trading, which is a thing that happens in the background apparently. Uh, but the threat that she makes internally, if he's shirking his duties, is that he'll need to dig the latrines for Knox's entire kabili and. Does not sound fun. What does it mean? Right. Uh, great question. We know that a Kabili is a thousand people. Uh, you know, it, it clearly is a unit of command within a legion, um, since it's Knox here, and she goes on to say that it's 1,000 people. Uh, so I was curious about that word and looked around a little bit, and there's no great translation for it anywhere. Uh, it shows up in a couple different languages with pretty different meanings uh it shows up in swahili and zulu specifically which both felt like a more likely uh source for this considering it's almost certainly suninke uh but in swahili one of the potential meanings for it is fivefold which if you you know if you've got a legion of approximately 5000 people calling a unit of 1000 a fivefold is pretty Pretty good, so it very well could be, you know, referencing that. I just thought it was a, a neat little division to show up here that I don't recall seeing before, and uh, so I, it's 
cool that it breaks down that way. But again, could mean a number of other things. I didn't list all of the possible definitions because there were a good dozen or so between three-ish languages. I'm a big fan. That's one of the words I just gloss over because it's military stuff, and it probably meant something. It probably it did. Look too Latin. Uh, no, it does not feel particularly Latin. If it were Latinized, we'd replace a K with a C and have it be a cabilum. Right. But it's not. Speaking of things in general, nice. Catherine tells us. Catherine tells us that Summerholm was known for baking a sort of sweet bread with apple slices inside. She's really looking forward to dessert. And, you know, that's fun. Okay, local baking custom. And it sounds pretty good because I'm going to be real with you. I'm not a big fan of sugar. I'm not a big fan of sweet things. I have a very low tolerance. But my dear sweet mother always buys donuts for breakfast whenever I come home because I am loved and she wants to express it even though it isn't really the most effective food for me. It's a sweet thing. And they're too sweet, except any apple fritter. Because even though those are too sweet, apple things are good. When I lived in New York City, I went to the farmer's market every weekend and came home with five or more pounds of apples of all sorts of varieties. I have a list of apple rankings. And I got to say, if you can find Stamen's wine sap anywhere, get it. Especially if you live in the Northeast, because they're amazing. And if you don't live in the United States Northeast, I'm sorry, your apples are just plain worse than they are there, because that is their native land where they belong, unless you talk about actual ecology or facts. But though Apple Love drew my attention to this, it's actually interesting. We know a fair bit about the climate of Preis already, and we'll find out more when we see how the stealing the weather turned out, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, Preis has a wasteland, Preis has a arable green stretch. Preis has a variety of environments, but it's kind of just the big bad place with not good weather and maybe hot desert, I guess. But what do we know about Callow? It grows stuff, but there's a lot of mm-hmm. ways to grow stuff. Maybe Callow's a big rainforest, right? I don't think we really have a strong reason to reject too many climates. Maybe rainforest is a bit extreme. But if Summerholm is known for baking a sweet bread with apple slices, yeah, they're bread country, but wheat or spelt or barley or rye grow widely. Apples, apples require a little bit more of a measured climate. Some apples are very picky. Some apples are not. But if they've got good apples, they must be local, even though even in the medieval era or fake medieval era, they would travel better than a lot of fruits because apples are hearty things. Everyone, go eat apples if it's fall where you live, which is nowhere on earth right now because it's being released midsummer in the northern hemisphere and midwinter in the southern. But if you live in the secret hemisphere where it's fall, go get apples. Well, hold, I don't think we can put out on air, like public, publicize the secret hemisphere. I think. You may have to cut that in editing. Okay. I'll make sure to do that. Thank you. But yeah, Callow is temperate. Callow is much Ap- like the yeah. vibes we've been getting. Probably general northern western, northwestern European. I don't know. Kind of like Anglo France. Callow is, like best bets. Callow is England is definitely an interesting stance. I, to I, take, I'm but... just saying ecologically farm ecologically apple what's apple in latin mal odorously i'd argue with that wide range of vocabulary 
Hello is a good kingdom, is what I'm saying. But mm-hmm. Cat ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of evil. Is the so is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of evil a zombie? Oh no, the zombie ate of her. We're getting very deep into this. This is I going think. well. <laughs> you know, after longing for this sweet bread with apple slices, the sort of pastry here. Uh, Kat, As do we all? Obviously, yes. Uh, I'm, and I could really go for like an apple fritter now. Um, <laughs> Kat says that she's pondering dessert uh, to Z's. And then says, well, what passes for it in praise has been something of a disappo- disappointment. Is she... I'm I'm worried now because of the language she used. Do you think she's thinking that that chicken with caramelized onion sauce was praisey dessert? Because if so, I would also be disappointed with that. I'm sure it's a delicious meal, but if somebody gave me that as dessert, I would be very saddened. There are parts of our world, parts where even some of our listenership resides based on our analytics, parts like, say, France, where after the main meal, they serve the salad. Okay. But not chicken with caramelized onion sauce. Maybe they serve the salad at the end in praise. And Catherine is confused. Oh, no. Arugula, how thrilling. Uh, you know, maybe that is what's happening here. Although, considering Z's agrees and is praisey, maybe, maybe praise knows what it's about. I mean, they do have pudding and, quote, strange pies. That sounds like... A food item in an RPG that when you eat it will have one of three different effects on you. Mm -hmm. One of which is wholly deleterious, one of which is vaguely good but not worth the investment, and one of which is the second best or third best buff in the game. And the the art for the pie is like, it's the wrong color and has like bits of random debris sticking out of the crust. Absolutely. And knowing praise, actually probably the case. It's not that the pies are strange, it's that they're called strange pies. (laughs) All that acknowledged, Masego doesn't have his sweet tooth independently. He learned it from his father, not the Lord Warlock, but his other father, who has a fondness for lemon pie. And the most delightful thing is that he doesn't even need to eat, you know. He just likes the taste. And consuming food that you do not need to eat would, under the... Catholic schema of the seven deadly sins likely be considered one sin in particular. Lust, because of the incubus. The lust devil is also a glutton. I like that. Very I'm good. I'm fond of it. And also, I'm sorry, but get me a man like that. Embodiment of lust who knows how to have a good culinary time? This is neither the time nor the place. Which is what Catherine says when she bites her tongue. Instead of asking what it was like being raised by a couple, half of which literally came from hell. And I'm deeply upset by this because we don't learn too much about Apprentice's upbringing other than his foundational trauma. And also, otherwise, he had a pretty good life with two loving fathers and the only functional family unit on the continent. But like, really? What's it like to have a dad who's a devil and a dad who's something much, much worse other than enviable? <laughs> yeah, we I mean we we get bits and pieces but the day to day, you know, which of them when he was a, a toddler, which of them played better games with him and that that sort of thing or how did they play games? Did they play infernal puzzles? Uh, you know, I just what what's going on in that household when they when they're young, when he's young rather. It it's too bad that Cat is far too polite to ask questions like that in this setting. 
But she really doesn't have time to ask questions. Because while Masego may be the son of the Lord Warlock, basically the most important non-hereditary and yet nearly hereditary noble in the Empire, other nobility being by blood or by name alone, and he's got name and family backing him up. Instead of asking questions of him, an extremely high-ranking person by all of his natural statuses, she needs to get to the general, right? Because she acknowledges she'd already been borderline rude by delaying her meeting to chat with a minstrel, an apparently no-name minstrel. So she doesn't have time to talk to possibly the second most important person in the city when she arrived. Well, in the city, based on entrances, I guess, since he was off the reality yeah. at the time. Hi, you've reached Warlock's residence. I'm out of the reality at the moment. Please leave a message. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that that's Kat for you. Her prioritization of social obligations can uh, be uh, skewed sometimes. Uh, fortunately, though, the person that she is breaking off this conversation with isn't too concerned about that. Uh, when she mentions that she needs to go talk to the general, the apprentice laughs and, ah, politics. I'm so very glad that my role concerns itself almost entirely with sorcery. And, you know, obviously Z's doesn't care, but also almost entirely? It, that is it, what he said, yes. Yeah, apprentice is a the apprentice to the warlock specifically feels like it's a uh, a pretty focused name attached directly to a pretty focused name. What else does his role concern itself with, unless you include something like learning as separate than sorcery or learning sorcery? My argument. Okay. Apprentice is at this point a primarily pricey name, and pricey names are by their nature, and names when they manifest in praise are by their nature inherently political because to be named is to be a political force. Apprentice might traditionally avoid that, but he's still legally more than. All right, fair enough. But still, it's it's The Apprentice. I, it, all right, um, he does say almost entirely. I'll give it to you. Uh, Pat walks over and uh, sort of joins in another conversation and gets a bit comes in at the end of a report uh coming to juniper about sort of the the situation in the rebellion and we find out that um the enemy here the rebels are fielding at least 500 cavalry in some theater here and juniper assumes that they're knights or rather questions if they're knights i doubt she assumes they are the knights are gone for all intents and purposes uh afalabi corrects that they are actually Free cities, soldiers, equipped in the style of Proserin cataphracts. Now, huh? later in the story, we find out that Halika has a version of cataphracts with a more Greek spelling of the word. But here they're being referred to as Proserin cataphracts, armed like Proserin cataphracts. Proser is not, to my knowledge, a particularly cataphract focused military in terms of the sort of real world analogs and so it's interesting to see that it's almost going backwards in translation compared to the real world of sort of cataphracts becoming knights here we have proser and cataphracts head proser and knights being called cataphracts heading to halika i'm not sure there's there's kind of a weird 
thing here where that term shows up for grosser before it shows up for the, the free cities, that the free cities are modeling it after the prosser in cataphracts. I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting chain, an interesting tree of uh, military advancements, technology, doctrine. Perhaps it's uh, early installment weirdness, as a TV trope would say. Potentially. It, I guess if cataphracts are a relatively new style of warfare in the in Proser and in the, the Free Cities, there's a chance that maybe they're just saying that because for Afalabi at least, uh, he's more familiar with Proser's version than with the Free Cities. Hard to say. The Free Cities are far away. So they meet each other, Lady Squire, General, and then he greets the Apprentice with a little less ceremony and asks after his Lord Father. And we know that Warlock doesn't dare show up where the story would lead to difficulties. But rather than give offense or just reveal that openly, Apprentice has the best excuse. Maybe later. He's putting the finishing touches on a project better not left unattended. Very innocuous words. And words you do not dare question when dealing with the Warlock. That would be like if uh, J. Robert Barbenheimer said... Oh, I can't come right now. I'm busy with the bomb. Yep. Okay. Have fun. Please stay there and stay very focused. Thank you. Keep working on your future war crimes. Yep. Speaking of future war crimes, uh, Practical Guide to Evil. Uh, we get uh, a, a little bit of crazy policy here. Um, Speaking of war crimes. Right. Cat is sort of walking through. Yep. If the Sovereign of the Red so- Skies is focused on a project let him do that because if you have to put the city under martial law there's an economic component to that that uh she doesn't want praise to have to deal with apparently the tower is obligated to put the bill for any damages to a city that happen under martial while that city is under martial law i don't know i think it's a cute policy that that apparently is enforced or at least upheld by the tower enough that cat thinks it would actually be the case here it's a weird case of an occupier having a policy that i guess benefits the occupied there's a it's taking responsibility for its own actions in a way that you don't normally see in an occupying force so it's it's neat the law didn't come from the occupation the law came after a high seat was put under martial law and stuff went badly and all of the others said, oh, this could happen to us. Tower has to pay for it. And Dread Emperor, bend over backwards to please the high seat, said, okay. Yeah, that was a rough reign for the power of the tower, huh? It was pretty hard four days. <laughs> but Kat, in her imagining of this situation, immediately d- jumps to not just assuming, but following through on the thought as though it's the case, uh, that Warlock is dealing with a, quote, fully incarnated demon. Hey, Kat. Probably not what's going on here, even if this scenario that we're walking through were a legitimate reason and not just an excuse. Most people aren't just dealing with fully incarnated demons as a matter of course. And yes, it's the warlock, sure. But you really just jumped to the very extreme end of the scale for, wow, it would be bad if he got distracted. I mean, to be fair to Cat, he's probably the most accomplished diabolist in praise, right? Accomplished? Yeah, sure. For now. I wonder how much diabolism he's gotten up to. No, actually, you know what? 
his marriage is one of the greatest successes Diabolism has ever seen. Like, actually. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of contract that you know will bite you eventually. And not in the fun incubus way, in the bad incubus way. <laughs> and they've been together decades. Like, we know it. it's actually really cute by the end, but that's bold to have the confidence in your diabolism to willingly keep an incubus around. But, you know, the warlock's a brave man. He is, as the Callowin saying goes, as brave as a horse. Oh my goodness. As soon as you said brave man, I knew exactly what you were about to say. (laughs) Oh, and I regretted it. You did nothing to stop it. The recording All it takes for the victory of evil is for reasonable men to stay silent. Our recordings are on different tracks. Even if I talked, it wouldn't it wouldn't cover up what you were saying. All it takes for the <laughs> triumph of evil is for a good man to record on a different track. Truly. Uh yes. So as I can't I don't know how to follow that up. Kat is talking about uh the difference in cavalry between um Prace and specifically Callow. Uh Prace has struggled in the cavalry department because horses don't exist in praise particularly uh and callow obviously doesn't sell their horses to the dread empire so the closest cavalry force that uh praise has is orcish wolf riders and i gotta say first of all those must be massive wolves if they are carrying orcs around like wow those are big wolves but these wolves have some limitations they're it takes a lot of effort to breed them. They bond very tightly with exactly one rider and can't get a new rider. They're hard to feed and supply because they eat just a ton of meat. And then Kat goes on to say that on the field, horses are better. They're quicker and heavier. Quicker, sure, I get that. Heavier, uh, you know, I guess these are massive uh, wolves, but horses are, you know, famously dense and strong. But he goes on to say that the horses are much less reluctant to run straight into a line of enemy soldiers. And that strikes me as odd. Uh, Horses are kind of infamously bad at running straight into a prepared line of soldiers because horses aren't going to run into a wall or a fence or what appears to be one of those things if there are people just standing there, you know, with shields and spears and all that. Horses don't want to die. They're, you know... Smart enough to not run into spear points, typically. So horses are kind of have historically had an issue with that, where you have to get the enemy to break a bit before your horses can make, before your your cavalry force can make contact. You you charge for the purpose of getting them to break and run, so that you can run them down. You would think that a predator animal would actually be better at that sort of thing. That a wolf would be more willing to just throw itself at something it sees it's as prey. I, I don't know. It's just it's interesting to me that uh, that's that's called out as a specific issue with this version of shock cavalry compared to horses. And by cavalry, I mean wolvery, I guess. Loopery. Loopery. Yeah, that's uh, that's what I, that was my next try. <laughs> Which I think we've coined already in this podcast. I believe so. Yes. But. You're entirely right. There must be something special about Callowin horses. Because the issue with real-life horses is really real-life horses. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Not to upset any... I want to say equifile, but I don't know if that's actually not just enjoyer of what works. Not to upset any equifiles out there, but... (laughs) 
something happens. There's an explosion somewhere. Everyone immediately arms themselves, except for the apprentice, who is a weapon unto himself. And Catherine notes, even Afalabi fishing out a wicked-looking dagger from his sleeve. Wicked-looking. Which is probably the most common description of a knife anyway, but a wicked-looking dagger? Good for him. He's in the Legions of Terror. He's high up. It should be wicked-looking. Get yourself a nasty blade, yeah. I would not be surprised if it's some, if not official, at least unofficial, perpetuated by Black, requirement that generals have scary weaponry, just so (laughs) they're better at story. I mean, Black famously has the most boring equipment out there. Exactly. So deflect the story on others. Mm. I mean, a couple of the generals have their teeth as their weapon, like more than one of them. Have... In different ways. Right, exactly. Teeth. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, Possibly that's pretty... the vampire. I don't know how vampires work. Right, I was including the vampire. That's a bit confident, but yeah. Yeah, fair, fair. That might be one of those, like, finger vampires where they suck your blood with their syringe fingers. You know, that common trope. I mean, you gotta admit, there's a reason that vampires have started showing up in romance media. Anyway, <laughs> this explosion is covered in three words. A distant explosion. Juniper is able to, in her one word at, one word response, sharpers. Okay, makes sense. There's an, She's accustomed to battle. She says, here is the class of munition. Great. Meanwhile, senior sapper Pickler contributes at least three, no more than six, from a distant explosion. An explosion that is far away in a palace, meaning intervening walls, various obstructions like cloth, you know, tapestries or whatever, rugs, things like that, different materials. Yep, and it's that specific. I'll have more to say about this senior sapper, but first she needs to scuttle up with her sword out. Yeah, she she scuttles all right. Goblins get the best ambulatory verbs just across the board, and they deserve them, obviously. But when Scuttle shows up, I I mean, that's pretty arachnid-like. Are we just... Are spiders and goblins like distant cousins in the guideverse? No, I think spiders just wish they had what goblins do. Ah, yeah. Fair enough. Hafalabi is upset because everyone else seems ready. And this general of the greatest army in all of the empire, because the other army was the one they beat, is taken aback that they were attacked when everybody important was gathered in the city under martial law because they're currently being assassinated left and right. And he's in charge of and knows that they want to kill him and the people that he's meeting with. And he's taken aback and he wishes he had been told. There's a difference between a broad awareness that an attack could be coming and specific preparations for a single incident that is likely to happen at a specific time. But yeah, come on, Awful Abby, get it together. More like Awful Abby, am I right? Nice. Uh, he complains a bit and, you know, you could have warned me so I could have had my legionaries prepared. Uh, and Kat, just so bluntly, just says, your legion has been infiltrated. It would have tipped our hand early. It's she's she's just getting right to the heart of it. She doesn't have time to, uh, you know, handle this guy's ego or, you know, walk through things gently to make sure that they're on the same page and earn political faith. Nope. Hey, you messed up and your legion is full of spies. I'm not going to be sharing sensitive information with you. I'm going to go deal with this problem now. Bye. Dealing with the problem involves 
looking around and she sees the bards from earlier, including the one whom at the end of the last chapter she suspected of something big. And now, after everything is going down, because she got distracted with diplomacy, with having to meet someone, she stage frighted her way out of military reason. She suddenly asks urgently, Masego, the time when you picked up on that time when you picked up on a name, can you do it again? Catherine, good move. A little late. We'll work on this for next time. Yeah, she would have saved herself a little bit of issue if she had walked to Masego and instantly said, Hey, look over at those those singers and musicians. Any any vibe coming off them? Anyone of uh, hand and fingers of the deities themselves or anything? Any incarnations of fate itself? Just curious. Uh, so, you know, Which yeah. is a question that she doesn't know this, but he would take that so seriously. Right. And completely unfazedly. He is the character in this setting to ask that question of and get a great answer from. Even if it's not his true specialty yet. Right. He's uh, still a great character to ask that from even now. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it's Z's. That's, that's, what, that's what you go to Z's for. Also, Bridges. We'll get to that. Uh, but she asks if he could pick up on a name. I know it's he... <laughs> Okay. Uh, and he says, it depends on the name, but usually yes. Uh, and I, I don't know. Do you, do you think that depends on the name thing is that he struggles with stealthy names, like stealth-focused names, thief or assassin, for as much as assassin counts? Is it a power thing? Like, he can't pick up the most powerful or least powerful names? I'm wondering what the restrictions are here that uh, limit his ability to detect a name. I'd also be willing to believe that it could have to do with the, if I may, level of manifestation of a name. There are names that just seem to be much louder names that are apparent mantles even to those without a sight for it and there are names that are and it correlates with stealth names but it's not just stealth names names that just kind of hang around it seems to me like he would he would definitely pick up on the saint of swords but he might struggle with the forgotten cut purse or something exact who what the gray pilgrim wears his gray no matter what He's also very powerful, but yeah. you know who's probably not so powerful? Catherine Foundling right now. But she is a squire through and through. She wears that name in her every getup, which is why she becomes so powerful and why she's also powerful, even though she's not so powerful. I agree, I think. Hmm. But talking about Catherine's weird mix of potency and relative low-keyedness is the same old song. Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, the bard announces herself before, sort of, before Aziz uh, has a chance to analyze her attachment to reality. Uh, and she announces that she has a song for everybody, uh, which is just a mouthful of a title and an instant chart topper, no doubt. Uh, but it's. The, the song is walking into an obvious trap because William has a chip on his shoulder. It's so good. Also, a great little bit of acting on her part for what comes next. To, you know, we, I talked earlier on or uh, when, we were, when we were talking about traps um, that the, the bard and cat kind of layer traps on top of each other when they're squaring off, and it starts here. Uh, there's several layers of trap going on at in this moment and one of them is announcing that 
is one of them is the bard announcing that she has walked into a trap. It's great. I was heartbroken to discover that Almorava, and in fact, no fan of A Practical Guide to Evil, seems to have posted a version of the song on the online. And I would like to announce the first podcast guys talking to Rata Greta song contest, where you can submit these, submit your version of these songs to us, and we'll listen to them and enjoy them. If we get even one submission for that, I will be thrilled to death. And at that point, one of the co-host chairs will be open. And it could be you, dear listener, who fills it. Speaking of filling things, Pickler fills her hand. As they all leap into action, Catherine jumps over the table, which, based on her height, is like a normal-sized human being leaping Mount Everest. Hockram and Juniper follow close behind, which, based on their height, is like a normal human being stepping over an anthill. And Pickler produces a sharper from God's New Wear. I realize there's a potentially crude and brusquely humorous interpretation of this. It's a joke. But also, she does produce a sharper from somewhere. Perhaps she has things sewn into her sleeves or what have you. Perhaps we go with an orifice of some kind. Or, Nicola is great. She is consistently so amazing. Has anyone considered seriously whether she's just named a goblin named? That Yeah, that dives us back into the tangle that is determining if and how goblins are named, whether we would, whether anybody would be able to tell what it would look like, would it be anything like anybody else's, uh, who Must knows? They go tell? No. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting question, uh, and uh, it would be great if we had some kind of information there, but I don't feel like anything ever shows up that is more than... You know, one of those hints that's only actually a hint if you read into it maybe a bit too much. Speaking of which... Cat <laughs> uh, sort of catches up to the bard and you know gives the classic, if you surrender now, I'll make it painless. Threat, promise, ultimatum. And the bard's response is, I'm not going to die, Catherine Foundling. And reading this, it seems like it's in this moment, you're not going to kill me, you're not going to catch me. But we all know that actually what she means is, I'm not going to die dot 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 ever. <laughs> there's a there's a, a an extra bit of weight to that when you know what a what somebody who's finished the series knows about this character. Unfortunately though, Kat hears this and hears the bard's follow-up of, oh, I can't fight, I don't have that much magic, I'm musical, yada yada yada. But I do have one thing. I do have one thing on you. And Kat just hook, line, and sinker says, and what would that be? Oh, she, she's letting the, she's letting her opponent set up a line to deliver her trump card against. Her. Uh, oh no, cat! Rookie mistake. Which is appropriate because Catherine is a rookie. Fair enough. Black would be very disappointed, and so is Hawkram. Actually, Hawkram groans when she asks the question. So good on Hawkram for picking up on that. Well, given what I know of Hawkram, not only has he kind of been picking up on name stuff just by being around Catherine. But he found out that he's a nascent named, what, five hours ago? 24 mm-hmm. hours ago? Sure. So he's probably read every single report about named that the Legion has access to at this moment already and fair. synthesized all of it. Extremely fair. He groans and the bar tells us, now and then I get to have a look at the script. Today's not the day I bite it. 
that line right there is so interesting because first of all, that's a huge piece of what we know about the bard later, the looking at the script thing. The limitation of now and then really feels like she's hedging her power when she's talking to Cat here, kind of ducking around what she's actually capable of. She has to put up a front for the gods themselves. Right, sure. But it's it's just a it seems in this moment like a ah, I'm a bard and so I know the way these stories go, but it's so much more than that as we know from the future. Uh it's just it's a line that it's <laughs> it's such a hmm, you really have to be able to back up a line like that. That's the kind of line you can't just say the today's not the day I bite it. I get to look at the script. You got to be able to be 100% sure on that or your whole sort of thing falls apart. So somebody being willing to say it should be pretty concerning. Not as concerning as the fact that she then says, wandering bard, exit stage left, steps left, and before she even touches the ground, is gone without teleporting and without turning invisible. Which we know because Catherine says, immediately, Masego, do you have a spell that checks for invisibility? I barked. Without bothering to reply, Apprentice murmured an incantation, blah, blah, blah. Very good thinking. Someone disappears. Easy to accept they're gone. Catherine isn't willing to take that chance. Apprentice doesn't even bother doing anything but taking care of it. And his spell comes up empty. It does. They work well together. And it's cool to see that starting now that they're both willing to just be so in on practical efficiency in the moment. Uh, You know, the woe are big on banter but when push comes to shove cat is good at here's an immediate response we need to do this thing and the people that she picks to be around her are excellent at following through on that it's great uh the spell comes up empty and cat questions you know are we sure this is accurate enough and Ziz is offended of course because naturally his magic is strong enough not even assassin could hide from that spell Obviously, Assassin's kind of a weird case when it comes to talking about various named because of everything about him. Um, that he's so super sneaky. Right. so he's, cool and such an important calamity. Right, exactly. It's, I don't know, there's, uh, there's various named, various roles that are sort of on the stealthy side of things. You've got your Assassin, you've got your Thief. To a lesser extent, you have uh, Archer and Ranger. Like, the, you know, there's some... some stealth capable people here and there and i just i'm always so curious now going back through thinking about what assassin is actually capable of is he particularly stealthy like is he just a sneaky fella is he or does he ride on his i'm gonna say it on his mom's name and is just unnoticed in a different way that people when he's not actually assassinating people you just can't really focus on him because he's not in the foreground. I don't know. I just, I'm just curious how the assassin functions in practice. Knives. Oh, my bad. Yeah. Good call. Catherine takes his word for it. Tells the, tells Juniper, I want you and the tribunes to stay here and protect the general. He's bound to be a target. Afalabi snorts. Much appreciated. And she takes Hakram and Masego and says, we're going hunting. Yeah. And I get what, her goal is here to bring the power to seem with cool. her. Right, to seem cool. Uh, but she wants to bring the power with her to hunt down where she knows the named are. But also, uh, she's bringing both of the named she has at her disposal, uh, herself and Ziz, 
uh, and the nascent named in Hawkram, and then leaving her, you know, ace general behind and the other tribunes. If even one of the heroes comes for Afalavi, if that ends up being the target, the senior staff of the 15th is just dead. If William shows up here, Juniper and all the other tribunes, they're just dead. They they won't stop him. <laughs> There's, she's taking the only people who have a chance against the heroes in one group and hoping that the rest of her talented but normal friends and officers can hold off whatever happens to this general that she doesn't actually care about that much. Well, the thing is, though, by doing this, she also ensures that they won't get killed by them, by the heroes. Because if she goes off with all the named, the whole story proceeds with her. There's a very solid chance that the big bad heroes simply won't end up heading this way because the characters left behind are not the story, but also too important to the story to just kind of background die. Like, I can't imagine Ratface being slaughtered off screen. But, hey now. But, there is a chance that they leave, wander around, have their fights, have their story, come back, and they find everyone hostaged. Like in the Mountain Goat song, Hostages. That sure. is a risk she's taken. But they're not going to be killed. I guess so. I think I think you have to be careful about pushing that too far. Because, yes, Kat I is do, our... I do, but Catherine uh, doesn't. Sure, Kat, Kat is our protagonist, and so we can assume that. But in the context of, you know, the the story that Kat's working with, with the story within the story here, uh, William or uh, the Bard or the Thief or the Bumbling Conjurer, they are all also named they are also the center of their own story and if their story is one where they are kidnapping the general and killing the guards protecting him they could do that from our perspective off screen because it's on screen for them it's the hero doing the thing that the hero set out to do obviously we know the heroes aren't actually seeking out um Afalabi. he's not important enough for what they're trying to do but had that been the goal if they were thinking like generals rather than named i think I think Juniper and the like could end up dead because they are, at this point, not attached to Kat. They don't have the the time with Kat to be attached to her in such a way that they're protected in that sense, I don't think. I don't know. The very thing is, Catherine knows that that's not the story they're going for because she ensured earlier Billy's story is inextricably bound to her own. They're a pair. His story is her story. Fair. All right, I'll concede on that one. And then. when I say her story, I do mean it in the sense of a deliter- deliberately feminist twist on the word history. Oh, not the uh, Sam Barlow video game, the uh, FMV game. They need an FMV version of the guide. Do they? And that's why we're having our first official podcast guys talking about FMV contest. Send us FMV games based on the guide and we'll enjoy them. Listener, if you come up with an FMV guide game and deliver it to us, uh, you will be the coolest person alive. And named heir to my seat as host. We are really just setting ourselves up to be destroyed by one of our listeners in search of our, our seats, huh? Oh, please. What's the worst that could happen? Yikes. So Masego is actually really excited, even though he's a noble kid who has no real-world experience. because. It's a rare thing to get the chance for a magical duel between named these days. Uncle Amadeus and Assassin kill most heroes before they can make a nuisance of themselves. And I just really appreciate his enthusiasm for the magical arts. I appreciate 
when he hears life and death battle, he thinks, may I have that opportunity? He is his father's son. And also his father's son. And also his uncle's nephew and his uncle's like weird pets, offsprings, acquaintance. Uh, <laughs> that's the relationship assassin and Z's share, right? Yeah, assassin is the offspring of the pet of the uncle of the yeah. apprentice. Right. Okay, good. I'm glad we got that sorted out. Uh, but he says that uh, Maddie and Assassin are kill all the heroes before they can get big enough to be a real nuisance. Uh, just those two? I feel like the Calamities are generally involved with killing names. Obviously, Ranger's a bit before his time, sure. But is Captain not smashing folks? Is the Warlock never on the field I mean, anymore? Well, Kesa, I've got word that there's a potential hero in Marchford. Okay, I'll take care of it. Okay, so where is Marchford? Fair, fair, fair. But Okay, so why is there a hell sitting in Marchford? <laughs> okay, uh, so I'm getting word that instead of Marchford, there is something that they only call the Orb of Screams. All I'm saying is, like Captain kill some heroes too. Fortunately, though, Zeev can back up his uh, interest in, at least in comparison to the other mages that Cat is familiar with at this point. Well, he says he's been mean to test the limits of what he can do, and Legion Mage and Legion Mages are a laughable benchmark in this regard, which is very fair, because they're Legion Mages who are meant to do two things with a solid mediocrity. Mm-hmm. And one, I appreciate that even now he's looking beyond. He wants to see the limits of what he can do. Not what he can do, the limits. He's trying to establish the boundaries, which is the first step to, of course, transgressing them. Sure. But Catherine's reaction to this is fantastic. She acknowledges to us mage lines weren't meant to be particularly versatile. Their purpose was massed firepower, and in that regard, they served perfectly well. I wasted no time in explaining this, though, since now wasn't the time for a debate. She's so sensitive about her daddy's organization. No, no, I. Yeah, yeah the Legion. The, the, the mages of the Legion aren't aren't necessarily going to be great at a 1v1 battle with you, Masego, but but you, you, you gotta understand that that they're supposed to fight in an army, and it was really mean of you to imply that they were the best part. System. The best part is Z's absolutely knows that and just doesn't care. You know, oh, they're, you know, they're squandering their abilities or, you know, whatever it is. He's aware of what their purpose is, at least in theory, even if he doesn't necessarily grok. In order to judge them, he must. Right. He doesn't necessarily grok the practicalities of the on-the-field function of the mage lines, because why would he care? But he knows what they can do. And in theory, why? What they can do, very little. Yeah. But- by reporting it, he, we, he just ends up with this, what, angry general with a whiny retort she holds in? Uh, so we get some, uh, some people show up, including Robert, who gives a little bit of a report that there were a couple people, heroes, that he ran into. Uh, we've got the tattooed streetwalker with a spear, the hunter. And uh, as he says, an angry guy with a whiny... Sh- an angry guy with a whiny sword. And I think he probably means a whiny guy with an angry sword. Uh, those two have a weird relationship, this this fella and his sword. Uh, 
I do want to hop back for a second though. When Z's laughs at the mages, is uh, everyone's favorite redheaded mage leader tribune here at this point? No. She's she's around in the next chapter. She shoots some lightning bolts, but no, we meet Clements at the end of this chapter. Oh, okay, cool, cool, good. I was worried she would, you know, have to stand there and take that kind of abuse, and I felt so bad for whoever, whatever her name is. I know enough about Catherine that you got to take a little abuse around her if you're one of her interests, and I mean that both in terms of the way she treats you in public and the way she treats you in private. Oh boy, it's canonical. Uh. So, Robert gives his report and says that we blew up the captives and bailed, like you said, but most of the other line was slaughtered during our retreat. I noted before, it was a brutally efficient way of controlling the prisoners in a, on a battlefield shaped by the nature of this world. And it worked! Good job! You killed the prisoners, Cat. You're, a, you're saving Callow. It... It's a rough one, and especially because following this, she refers to it as a backup plan. It is just in so many ways, the fact that just tossing some explosives into prison cells is your plan B. There's so many ways that that is such a wild thing to be the case. It's not, all right, we're going to execute the prisoners as a means of doing X, Y, and Z. And it's not, as a last resort, execute the pr- Nope, it's just, your first step fails, blow them up. There's, who boy... This is such a strange thing to, for what's going on, get pretty well glossed over by Kat and her officers. Like, it comes up a few times, it's mentioned, but for the most part, they kind of just say, yep, we blew up the prisoners anyway. And I think this is one reason why good old Robbie boy loves Catherine, because he really does. Mm-hmm. She lorps his group right onto her own. And tells him to come on. And he says, hear that, boys and girls? We're having a rematch with Shiny Boots and his concubine. Only this time we've got Catherine. Expletive cut for podcast rating foundling. What do we say to that? And everyone calls out, stab the kidney, loot the corpse. And Catherine is beloved of the goblins. She knows how to treat them. And that's with respect and manslaughter. Yeah. That, I mean, we know from very early on that Hawkrim is an honorary goblin. I feel like Kat's just a goblin. Like, the honorary isn't even necessary anymore for her. Again, canonically half-orc. Nothing tells us her other half. <laughs> True. <laughs> Good point. Except... Uh, well, we do know that she has human teeth, because Hawkeye complains about how ugly they are. That's very fair. And I don't want to ever be disingenuous with my reading of Catherine Foundling's species. <laughs> That's true. Uh, as a voice for the community and this through this podcast we want to be very serious about how we interpret the text especially in regards to the main character we want to be respectful which robert is not when he meets masego he says so who are you four eyes it's a very low level insult very elementary school and z's uh strangely for z's but powerfully called him on it four eyes really that's what you're bringing to the table i've met wittier imps and most of them are sentient enough to talk. Robert rolls up with a just a calm, hey, nice to meet you, here's the insult that I'm obligated to give. And Z's fires back with some heat. It's good for him. Pat starts to work her way through what's going on here um, after this whole bit with uh, 
Apprentice and Robert meeting and, uh, you know, noting that they're going to be great friends down the line. And she starts to go through possibilities. Um, why was the swordsman hitting here? Uh, it's There's going to be a bunch of legions here, plus Kermit's mage line is nearby. Uh, is he just killing legionaries? Is he throwing away his advantage against... Uh, she's, she's trying to figure it out, and she says the line, or thinks the line, what else was there? She starts going through palace plans. She eventually reaches some goals but in this paragraph where she's running through everything it's so strange to be reading it cat is so thoroughly without control she's not floundering but definitely grasping and lacking in knowledge of the situation lacking she has the base level of strategic knowledge and next to no tactical knowledge of what's going on or why this is so weird for catherine we were not Having read the story, we're not used to Catherine being in this position. It's cool to see these early stages. I know we've talked about this before every time she gets overwhelmed, but this moment here where she's dealing with other named and is just as lost as anybody else, it's very weird. It's very surreal. But where her standard competence, her developed competence, her, where her cultivated competence is not yet, we do have some things that hold true from, well, his first. She tells the sappers to take their shots carefully. Regulars stay with her and Hakram. Masego, do what you think is best. And he replies indifferently, I always do. So good. She understands what his strengths are in the broad sense, but knows that what her limitations are, that she doesn't know exactly what his capabilities are in any given moment. And Z's he knows what he's about and just more or less shrugs. Yeah, I, I'm i going to do what I'm going to do. And, uh, you know, I'm not taking orders here. I'm going to do my thing. It's great. Such a great interaction. Of course, there is a problem. Because when Catherine and the mages with whom she's reunited, including the special mage, uh, launch their attack, when a bunch of fireballs fly, they get counterspelled. There's a mage on the other side, a named mage, and he had a name and not a meek one. And so the thing is, yes, right, but um, not a meek one sounds pretty mighty. And I don't think we can really give credit to someone who, if I may, bumbles into the right choice here and there. Yeah, the bumbling conjurer is an interesting one. He has these flashes of incredible power, I guess. And we'll talk about him a lot more, especially next chapter and going forward. But saying his name is not Meek feels very weird for the way that it functions. And then the room fills with goblin fire. Oops. Ugh. Why did Catherine do that? <laughs> well, uh, I'm not sure. But I do know that we will find out next week because, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Rata as we discuss a spear, a bridge, and a candle. Wade in their blood. Hi, 
Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Reddit is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Reddit's Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Hide and Seek by Raspberry Music. Explosion sound effect was Explosion underscore zero one by Pixabay. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge if you'd like to support this podcast follow us on twitter at the long price do you have questions comments or contributions are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors email us at the at gmail.com if you'd like to materially support our work find our patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name receive personalized stories and art and access at least one patreon exclusive tangent we implore you don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Grey, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, chapter 8, Reversal. Reversal.